0: Welcome to another episode of Reproducibility. I'm Amy Orban, speaking from Eindhoven, and I'm joined by Sophia Kruvel in Amsterdam. Hi. We are not joined by Sam today because his headphones aren't working, um, so it'll just be us two, but I'm, I'm sure we can keep the conversation flowing very well, because today we're joined by um Oh, I forgot your last names, guys. You will have to introduce. Them. I need to. I need to look them up. Or Sophia, do you know them by heart? Uh, uh, yeah. Um, so we're joined by two
1: two guests today: um, Lisa Spitzer and um, Tobias Heike. Is that how you pronounce it? I hope that'd be bad yeah, if I like correct. as a German person wasn't able to properly pronounce a German name. Um, I'm also a German person. <laughs> <laughs> Seven
0: people. Yeah. Yes, Amy, you're also
1: German, but you've like you 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 have like a uh, sort of plausible deniability on it, on you know, with your second passport and all. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I won't be kicked out of the UK when Brexit happens. Oh, Happy days. <laughs> but yeah, so we're, today we're going to talk about um, kind of how to document your experiments well. Um, and uh, yeah, a project that Lisa and Tobias have been working on to help people easily and reproducibly share experimental procedures, which, um, sounds really cool and I can't wait to, to hear more, but maybe, um, Lisa, do you want to introduce yourself, kind of what you're doing at the moment, um, where you're based, et cetera?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I'm Lisa Spitzer and, um, I'm currently doing my master's degree at the University of Cologne. And, um, I'm also working in the department for research methods and experimental psychology, and um, there I met Tobias, and uh, he asked me if I wanted to join him in his uh, project, which I did. <laughs> and uh, so here we are. <laughs> cool. And, and Tobias, so I
0: hear you're not no longer based in Cologne, or
3: oh, that's correct. I I moved to Mannheim last. September. September. I'm now at GASIS, the Leibniz Institute for Social Sciences, um, where I'm a postdoc and working on open science. My, my job title is open science enthusiast, <laughs> um, so I might get into that later uh, today. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, what, I, I did my PhD is, in Cologne. GESIS is, is for those who don't know? Yeah, it's a Leibniz Institute, so the big Leibniz research community, and there is like a number of different institutes throughout Germany. And uh, Gazes is for the social sciences, so we provide infrastructure for everything related to social sciences, mostly sociology and political sciences, but of course also touching psychology. Um, anything from uh, Postprint servers to data archiving to data collection um, to open science basically.
0: Sounds like the whole whole smorgasbord of open science. <laughs>
3: yeah,
0: um, Sophia. So, how, do you want to explain how how it came to be that Lisa and Tobias are now on the pod? Yeah, of course. So I met them
1: um, at the Open Science Conference in Trier in wait March, right? Um, sure. <laughs> pretty sure. Um, I'm glad, man. Yeah, and um, so you presented uh, your project on um, well, Tobias presented the project um, on um, using screen recordings to work more reproducibly, and I thought that was pretty cool. Um, Like like a nice addition to to working more reproducibly. reproducibly. Um, And I thought that we should have them on the pod to. To advertise this more uh, to to other people and to to open that discussion up a little bit maybe as well, on like what kind of things we should be adding.
0: Well, that sounds that sounds great. Um, maybe we can start by just Tobias, be for you giving an overview of what the the project was that you presented in Trier.
3: Sure. Um, so um, it started all for me personally when I received a review by a very good reviewer um, who basically said well it's nice that you said you did an evaluative measure or did this and that but how did it actually look like could really change the outcome of the procedure if if, uh, in my case an evaluation of some uh, objects uh, how how it was actually done and so I started writing like how the measure looked like and how many slider points and tick marks and whatever. And I figured this would be just way too much space. And it would be just one issue uh, out of many where you have to describe something with words in detail. And and I've heard about the idea about just, you know, just record a video and upload it and people can just take a look at it. And it's really easy for others to, to see what you've actually done and basically what i did then is i asked lisa if she could do that for me uh, from my procedure (laughs) and uh, and she did and then we just uploaded it and the paper is published now and then only afterwards i figured that the work lisa and and i put in might be just useful to write it up and and lisa basically wrote an entire tutorial she can talk about later Um, but the the idea also was for me to actually just say well If you do not replicate a study, it could be either because the original effect isn't there or maybe because um, there are small details in the study that are important that aren't written up because we don't know they are important because we don't write up our method sections in such a perfect detail that you can just reproduce the study perfectly. And so I thought it would be a very good tool to also use these screen recordings to actually report what you've done. And so replication studies can just make use of it, um, even if the original software isn't available or is only available for some people if they pay for it. And so I thought it would be a very nice solution for a number of of small problems. Yeah.
0: That sounds really, really interesting because I think it's becoming ever more an issue, you know, with more and more replications. And we were talking... um, to Priya Silverstein last week about replications. That will also be a podcast where she said, you know, there were very small differences in her design that then once she couldn't replicate something, the author said that mm-hmm. um, those, you know, th- those might be influential in, in the result and it's ever more important to document your your methodology properly. And as people say, kind of a picture <laughs> is more than a thousand words. Yeah. Um, but Lisa, how, how does the kind of project work and how, what does your tutorial paper kind of show the, the reader?
2: Um, yeah. We um, chose one software um, to make an example. It's open broadcaster software. Um, and we chose it because it's uh, free. It doesn't add a watermark. So it's um, pretty beneficial. We thought. And um, then <laughs> I started um, doing like 1,000 screenshots at first um, because uh, we wanted to document all the steps you have to take so that um, every researcher uh, exactly knows what to do, um, has an introduction. So um, the, the uh, program is a bit difficult at first because it has many functions, but we uh, brought it down to the most important ones and documented this so that everyone can like take 10, 20 minutes to uh, get an overview and then start and it's um, it's not as difficult as you might think at first so this is a, um, what's the um, purpose of the tutorial so how do you think that fits in with kind
0: of a reproducible papers so do you still need to share your scripts um, to show kind of how you randomize for example or or how How should something like that slot in in a perfect world in kind of a paper?
3: Hmm. So, um, I definitely don't think it can substitute the open materials. Uh, I think it's still uh, perfectly necessary to upload anything you have. uh, So people, like you said, can check your counterbalancing, your randomization. Um, Just by one video, it doesn't really help. But it's just something you can add on as a description. and it's quite easy, and it, it's especially easy for um, the reviewers and the peers who are taking a critical look at your paper to have a brief look at it. I mean, um, you might read a paper and you think, ah, oh, it's kind of interesting, but you don't want to spend days researching the code and taking a look at everything. But you might take 20, 30 minutes to watch the video of the procedure. So it's just something you should add to it. It's nothing that can replace open materials or open scripts um, at all, I would say.
1: But it's more than just um, kind of like like the, the, yeah, sort of framing it like that, sort of being like you know it's, it's something nice that people can um, look at, um, to have an easier idea of um, of what is act- what is actually done. Sounds a bit like it's more like an advertisement for the paper, right? But it's it's more than that, isn't it?
3: Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. I mean. It'll- The likelihood of the video including more information than the paper, I would say, is quite big, especially in psychology. Um, And so, take my paper, for example, very small study I did, um, nothing spectacular, just some pictures shown and then afterwards an evaluation, but still, the video contains so much more information than uh, the text I wrote initially or still have published now. And so, yeah, definitely, I'd agree that um, the important part is that it includes more information. And so, reviewers and peers can be might find something critically in there that they think is important for new studies. Um, definitely.
0: So is it, um, like I'm trying to, I'm trying to formulate this question. Um, so you, so in the end, this is just screen capture, isn't it? Yeah. So do you think that there, that such a project could be extended to capture more around an experiment, because often, well, in enteric studies or prolific studies, um, kind of screen capture is probably the most important thing. But a lot of times, people now are also discussing about everything that happens around the experiment, um, kind of how people are introduced and welcomed, and where they're sitting, etc. So, do you think that that you know that such a project could be extended to provide even more information about? The, the methodology or, or do you think that kind of the most key information is part of the screen recording and, you know, that's why that piece of information might just be the most efficient way of documenting the process?
3: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so just to make it clear, we're not asking people to actually film and upload the procedures by individual participants because uh, that could get, you know, a bit tricky concerning privacy issues. Um, and <laughs> so what we are suggesting is that you just record a procedure yourself um, or ask Lisa to do it as I did. Um, And so uh, it would be difficult, let's say, to, uh, you know, upload everything the webcam is capturing from an online participant. It would be nice for us, but that wouldn't be possible, I would say. Um, Yeah, but of course you can edit so you can actually film um, the lab environment and add it to the video. That could be a good idea. I like that. Lisa, how to do that?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I will uh, work on that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, What I like about the project is that it's so simple. I started with not knowing anything about um, screen recording and uh, when Tobias asked me to do it, I, uh, I did a quick research online and I um, I looked on different products uh, which we could use and then um, yeah, I started trying it um, for, for myself and um, with this tutorial now people don't even have to do that and it's um, it's really quick, it's easy. Um, I think with the um, recording of the environment or the lab, that would be really great because of course there are... Even more details that could influence the procedure, the results. But I think um, recording the screen on screen-based um, research is like the first step um, and an easy step that one could take to include much more, um, much more information than just writing it down.
0: Yeah, I agree with the. So, would you suggest that? A re- somebody who's doing a piece of research they can record their screen and then they just upload it to for example the osf and and share the link in their paper
2: or how how do you think that would work best yeah uh, we um don't encourage people to um as tobia said to record um subjects um during the experiment but um as we did it we um got student assistance and um, let them do the experiment once, twice. You, you do have to test the experiment um, even if you're not recording, so it's uh, efficient to just run the recording with it, and then um, like, um, let the person do it for, um, one time, um, the whole experiment, and um, so you have an overview for the people um, that want to watch um, the procedure of the experiment later.
0: Yeah, it would be really cool to even have kind of a database of all these different recordings of different people's studies. Cause you probably, I I don't know, even very, very small things might make such big differences. Like um, we, I know that in Oxford, we use, we have a Qualtrics subscription and it automatically puts like the logo everywhere (laughs) of the university. Um, And just thinking about it it might be interesting, like it, and really important for people to know that they're, you know, that that is a case and, and whether you tell people if you, in Qualtrics, you can decide whether to show kind of a bar that shows a progression throughout the study, or whether to not show people how far they're through the study, and all these things I've I've never rep- reported in my papers, but it might be really important for people to know.
3: Yeah, yeah and I, for example, I did um, presentation times, very brief presentation times, and so masking a stimulus or a word is. Uh, st- Completely changes when you change the font colors. For example, if you have a black uh, font color or a gray one, completely it makes a huge difference. And so, uh, having this technology, or having just a video um, uploaded somewhere, uh, would be very useful for me to just take a look at how oh, what color did they use. Oh, okay, gray, not black. Oh, now I know why my stimuli are visible, even though I mask them um, with the original masks, maybe even. So yeah.
2: Yeah, um, we also got the um, argument that um, the effect should be robust enough or strong enough to not be influenced by such uh, small details. But I think especially in psychology, we do have small effects and we do have effects that um, get influenced really easily, Um, like Tobias said with the um, the stimuli that are just uh, shown for a small amount of time
0: yeah i think that's an ongoing discussion isn't it with also with the large-scale replication projects um was it many labs too Probably. i don't i, I don't remember who <laughs> looked at generalization of effects over different populations etc mm. and how robust effects are mm.
3: yeah but i mean if you know so, so we, we're having these post hoc arguments and they could be valid they could be just post-hug arguments where people just keep on arguing and i think in many psychology areas you can just come up with post-hug arguments quite easily um and so we can just go in circles forever and ever or we could start recording our video procedures and um, we're not really allowed to give any post-hug arguments anymore i mean it might be a big step um, i'm taking here but still i mean um if you say, well, it looks pretty much exactly how it looked like, and um, now um, those changes you say that might have been there um, are really not there, then um, we can maybe progress a little faster than we are progressing right now, where we are going in circles quite often. I would argue.
1: So, like going in circles um, when it comes to replication. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, so actually, I was wondering about the sort of the the, the replication aspect of this project, right? Um, so I think at some point you you argue that um, that direct replication is is the most inform- is the most informative way to go for replication.
3: Well if you don't find the effect
1: <laughs> what, what, wait, wait here what, what do you mean
3: Well I mean if you, if you can generalize an effect I think that's that's a strong case for an effect so uh, a direct replication you know it could be just some artifact that is producing some kind of effect and then um, it's not worth any anything so having a replication a conceptual replication um, where you find the effect, that's i think worth most but if you don't find the effect let's say you change something then a direct replication where you don't change anything or nothing that is of importance or maybe you only change stuff that because time changed and concepts are differently now okay then i think those replications are most informative so only in this circumstance Uh, and then having the original materials and the knowing how it looked like um and if you don't find an effect then. Well, maybe then it's some, either something so small even the video can't pick it up, or the effect isn't real. That's what we imagine.
1: I mean, I so I, I mean I agree that uh, you know that sort of difficulty of um, you know if you I guess like with when, when it comes to skeptics, but I'm a bit I don't know I'm a bit wary of um, of making the um, importance or relevance of a replication. Um, Conditional on the result of the replication, right?
3: Mm-hmm. I can see what you mean. <laughs>
1: because I, guess, I mean i mean—I guess, like, right, Because like, I guess, in a way, like the the conceptual replication should um, should also say something about um, about the effect, um, oh, yeah. even if it, even if even if it fails in, in that Definitely. sense, right? Because otherwise, um, I mean, right? So like, I, I guess like, I guess the direct replication is the is the strongest thing to do. Um, if you know that you're going to be faced by, by people who are going to criticize um, the idea of replication in the first place,
3: right? Yeah. And I mean, I can see uh, personally, I mean, I, to- I agree with you. I mean, if you if, if the effect is so small that some minor changes um, completely diminish in effect, then you can ask the question if it's worth studying this because it probably not have any real influence on, on human behavior. Um, but if you are more on a theoretical level and you think, if is this even possible theoretically, um, such as what I studied, a subliminal, um, um, in my case, a relative conditioning, um, then it would be still interesting to find it even though it's a small effect and it might not be that relevant for the actual world out there. And so then I would say then a direct close replication is really something useful. Um, and you can imagine some kind of scenario where you run a first or one or two studies or replications and then you maybe pre-register a very very close direct replication or something like that so but yeah i mean of course this is not the only thing that's important i have to agree
1: so, so, you're basically saying that the sort of the, the more unlikely the effect is to actually uh, exist, the more you should move towards direct replication.
3: I think that's what I'm saying. I don't know if that's a good suggestion or something that should be written down uh, and carved in stone. <laughs> yeah,
0: I like it. <laughs> Sophia's being the philosopher, she always puts me in a corner as well. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. No,
0: but I think it's because um, I think that's I think that's yeah. essentially what we are
1: doing with like with lots of uh, like like lots of those replication projects.
3: Yeah.
1: Right, like sort of like, the, the, cause, like for some reason the the consensus is that direct replication is the way to go, even though that like I think clearly isn't the case um, when it comes to actual sort of accumulation of knowledge or whatever, finding like uh, yeah, get, getting to somewhere mm. that's that's closer to the truth.
0: But I guess it's it's the accumulation of knowledge exists in a scientific environment, in the yeah. current scientific environment. Um, doing a conceptual replication and not replicating or replicating something that's slightly different kind of opens up your you know flank to to kind of attacks very easily and so probably the direct replication is something that we resort to in in those in that mm. sort yeah, it's, of it's environment a political decision as well right? we can't just think about science as a uh, perfect simulation me- of knowledge <laughs> Me trying to be a philosopher
3: <laughs> making an argument for lisa and my uh, paper is basically you can argue that well considering the methods aren't described that clearly currently, um, I can probably run a replication that looks quite okay on paper, but actually it was a really, really mm. bad attempt. Um, and uh, therefore, we didn't find the effect. I mean, that's an argument you could make. Um, I'm not trying to do that, but um, that would be an argument against you know having more loose um, replications and saying, oh, it didn't work, so therefore the effect must be Yeah, and by, sort of by...
1: Yeah. by, by- Having your um, sort of yeah, but your your suggestion of um, screen recordings, but having that as an option, as as you said earlier, I think you kind of uh, remove that arg- argument or the possibility exactly. of that argument. Yeah,
3: yeah, that w- uh, would really be nice. hopefully ideally at least. Yeah, we would say, oh well, but you didn't do this and that, and you had whatever the stimulus wasn't actually visible. And
1: uh. <laughs> okay, so basically, everyone yeah. go do the screen recordings, especially if you're doing replications.
3: Yes. Oh no, no, no! Even, especially if you're doing original research, because that's what we want to replicate. Maybe, or maybe not.
1: Ah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, so if, you, if you're doing applications do or Just if you it. if you want to be replicated, yeah, If you want to, yeah, you okay. want to do science,
3: uh, <laughs> do if you want to do science, you should do that.
0: <laughs> beautiful summary. <laughs> yeah. Well. Okay. Well, with that, um, with that beautiful statement, we will um, end the first half of the podcast and and go into our break you are listening to reproducibility serving a discussion of important issues in science and psychology one mug of tea at a time do you like the taste of our podcast give us a follow on twitter at reproducibility rate us on itunes and tell other early career researchers about us if you have any questions or suggestions you can reach us on twitter or via our email address which is reproducibility at gmail.com Over next weeks, we will also release some specialty flavors, small podcast episodes talking to a wide range of psychological researchers, especially awesome ECRs that we want you to meet. If you have someone you think should come on the show, send us a message. Welcome back to the second half of this week's reproducibility. We're talking everything to do with screen recording, um, how to better... Keep a record of your experiment and we talked a bit about replications as well, which was very interesting. But let's move on a bit to Woo-hoo. um talking about kind of your experiences to BS and Lisa in doing this work and in being in open science. So I think Lisa, you're our first master students interviewee oh. on the podcast. <laughs> so kind of how how do you feel working in, in open science kind of in your masters and and doing this sort of work and in that stage of your academic um, career?
2: I um, really enjoy doing this. And um, I think it's a great possibility for me. At my university, we actually do um, some open science stuff, um, but not as much as I think would be great so that everyone would participate. And um, yeah, for me, actually, I really got into open science um, because of Tobias, because he asked me to join the project. And um, I I really like the way so far. So um, writing the paper was um, really exciting and um, getting into the process. um, Yeah, and um, I think the more I do, the more I um, do research in this area, the more I'm um, myself an open science enthusiast. (laughs) And um, I just... (laughs) What do you think makes the area special
0: to do research there? Kind of why? Why are you drawn to it towards it now?
2: Yeah. Um. When I thought about my um, dissertation, I, um I started thinking about different um, areas that I could do uh, to do it in, and um with open science, I feel like you're not restricted to just one area because it's important for all areas of psychological science um, because everyone should like um, publish the paper, the material, the video recordings online. And I think it's a much more, it's a broad area. And um, I, I really like the community too. Um, when I was at the Open Science Trier, I was really nervous because I'm just a master student and um, I'm doing the air quotes now. And um Yeah, I um, really like that everyone was um, really open. And I think this is what open science is really about, being really open and communicating and, um, yeah, being um, a really nice community. And um, this I like to
1: I really like that you said, that you that, that sort of uh, just a master student thing. I think I literally emailed emailed someone with a question and and included like oh I'm you know, just a master student and they emailed me back being like never say that. Um, <laughs> so I, I I very much get that. Um, did you did you um, in in your masters did you um, have any uh, open y stuff in the curriculum as well or was it really mainly the project that introduced you to this?
2: Yeah, I think uh, one of my professors, um, the one I actually work for, um, Dr. Stahl, um, he or uh, or Professor Stahl, sorry, um, he um, includes a little bit of it into the curriculum. Um, for example, we um, really um, talked about. Yeah, of course, meta-analysis uh, itself is not really the core topic, I think, but um, here and then. Um, he included some of it um into the lecture but it's never the main topic and i think it it really should be and um this is um also what i'm really glad about that i could join into this project because now i think i'm really into the whole area and before um i was like oh yeah um pre-registering it's it's a good thing but um most um most um, people don't really expect it when you do a project at university. So you don't because you don't really know what to do. And now um, that I know what to do, I think it's much easier to um, follow the open science uh, path.
1: So do you, want, do, you, do you think you're going to um, mainly be sort of doing open science um, in whatever research you're, you'll continue to do? Or do you want to actually continue looking for, solu- for like better solutions like um, your screen recordings project?
2: I would really like to actually um, go into the field of uh, meta-science and um, work on the area itself because, um, as I learned at the conference, um, it's it's really important and we are at a stage that we do make accomplishments and we go um, forward, but I think there's much more to do and much more to learn in this area, especially. I think it's really
0: interesting how... Um oftentimes people become interested in open science not through the curriculum or through one lecture but yeah through those personal connections that can bring you into the community and and um, you know for you that was that project with Tobias for me that was kind of meeting and, and working with certain people during my research day in, at the University of Tubing um, and I often think we forget how much how any person can of take somebody else with them and and get them interested in open science you know it doesn't need to be the biggest of professors it can just be you know somebody who is who it already understands this importance and who just wants to share it and yeah it's something that i've been reflecting about a lot at least personally kind of how people get into open science because i think it's a it's a lot easier than just giving people a lecture um so, yeah, yeah
2: yeah i think so true and i'm really great uh grateful um for Tobias help because I really think that he uh, pushed me throughout actually my, my whole um, time studying because when we worked together, he gave me all the cool um, tasks um, which involved programming. So he started to um, um, get some programming skills and um, then he asked me to join the paper. And I think, I think everyone in the best cases has someone that pushes them into this direction and helps them um, yeah, develop the skills that are necessary to go forward and to evolve and learn more. Oh. <laughs> that was so
1: nicely said.
0: <laughs> 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 I'll just leave that there, Sophia. Yeah. Well, and Tobias, you're now actually called, as you said, Open Science and So, so kind of is that what does that actually entail, except that being the best job description I could ever think of?
3: Yeah, yeah, and being very enthusiastic about anything uh, open science related. Um, well, uh, I actually had to figure that out myself as well, a bit in the beginning. Um, but basically, I'm doing anything open science related, mostly related to um, what you can call open methodology or open methods. So. Um, Documenting your uh, your experiments or your surveys uh, in sociology um, and um, documenting your data analysis, um, pre-registration and stuff like that. And of course the main task or one of the main ideas to achieve that other people are doing this is by giving them help, so training. Um, so I'm giving a few workshops every once in a while. Some are just for Gazes internally. So I'm giving a workshop on Markdown next week, um, which, of course, I haven't prepared yet, but enough time to go. Um, and um, I'll give a workshop on reproducer research in R and LaTeX and stuff like that. And then also, we're hoping to write some guidelines on how to document your surveys. So it's mostly survey-related then. Um, but so if you do a survey, what kind of information should be included in the paper, in the appendix, and the online supplementary material? Um, so ideally, people have some kind of checklist. So they say, oh, okay, I should include the field time and the number of respondents and dropouts and what kind of dropouts and um, what kind of letters did I write them? Did I write them a reminder? How did it look like? Et cetera. Um, Those are maybe my main tasks currently. I'm sure I've forgotten something very important. Um, (laughs) Yeah.
0: So what do you, I guess you interact a lot through these workshops with people who are kind of in different places on the kind of Mm -hmm. path to open science. Um, do, Do you what do you what have you learned by interacting with kind of a wide range of people on the subject matter of for example programming or being more reproducible are there any kind of things that what makes life hard for them or what drives them on
3: yeah i mean i think uh, this will not be a surprise to anybody working in academia but uh, the main argument is usually time so it's like yeah it sounds great but uh, i'm not gonna learn this in this language i'm not gonna learn python and r now just because i've been using stata for the last 20 years it sounds great but i don't have the time um and so i think um i've been thinking about that last week actually and thinking about how can we incentivize open science and of course there are many ways um, publications and um, writing it into job applications but for institutions and departments i think one way is to to give the people time and i mean how can you do that as if having open science enthusiasts being everywhere <laughs> and helping you with your um, methodology with um, maybe for example s- screen recording or stuff like that so that could be, but that's one main takeaway I'm getting is is just time, uh, and the other one I forgot. I had another point. Maybe I'll come back in a second.
1: <laughs> time is just. I mean, yeah, I want more of it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't have any time uh, left here. Um, I'm sorry. We're,
0: yeah. No, I can. I, I I very much recognize that. I think. Sophia, you're currently writing your thesis, so time is probably also limited... Uh, I want like a I time, I time
1: turner. I want a time turner, like in Harry Potter, like Hermione has. Yeah. Who <laughs> doesn't?
3: Yeah, I like that too.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> i are just going to leave. Well, I mean, so what we, what we do... What we, so the guests that we've had on so far, and I think that's our plan overall, mm. is they've, they've all been um, early career researchers, um, um, like, like you two as well.
0: Yeah, we end our... I always forget so we so we end our podcast with some questions Sophia but I always forget what the questions are do you want to do you want <laughs> to the short answer questions
1: so one thing we do always ask is kind of it's, it's about you know sort of your experiences um well not talking about so like, kind of like what you would um what you would say to um some, someone else who's an early career researcher on like how um how to incorporate open science um into their research like how yeah if, if there's anything any roadblocks that you, you've encountered and how you how you mm-hmm. overcome them um yeah so that's 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 one
0: lisa do you what how did you incorporate how do you think other master students can incorporate open science into their research if they don't have somebody <laughs> as wonderful as tobias in their life
2: um yeah i think that um the most important part is to um just try different things and for example just um, if you want to try something like screen recording you can go online you can do your own research like I did when um, I did um, the project called, um work when Tobias first asked me and it's not as difficult I think I would guess most of the time not as difficult as you might think at the beginning and what I would also um, encourage people to do is to go to the uh, professors and um, if you do a project and they don't ask you to um, use open science methods, ask them if you could do it, ask them if you could pre-register, um, if you could upload the material because um, you too have a voice and um, you can also change the um, course of the, of the project and um, you can incorporate these open science um, yeah, methods yourself if you take the initiative
1: nice maybe you can yeah exactly (laughs) maybe 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 you can convince a a professor who has never thought about it before yeah that's good
0: i love the you should have a voice (laughs) and maybe don't don't move away from your principles or or try you know try your best not to i guess we can have a whole discussion about that later (laughs) um but yeah
1: Yes, principles are very important. But to to be honest, how how did you get um, into open science um, in the beginning? You know, obviously now you're paid to be um, in open science, but um, you must have started somewhere. (laughs) It wasn't always like
3: this. Yeah, I did. Um, So I think it's quite interesting because um, I did my master's and my bachelor's in the Netherlands, in Nijmegen. Um, And I was basic. I had an office office, at the social psychology department for my master's thesis. So I was kind of in the entire lab groups at every lab meeting. And that was in 2011 to 2013-ish. And so a lot of things happened uh, in social psychology. We had Dietrich Stapel in the Netherlands. And of course, my supervisors all knew him. Um, We had the false positive psychology paper coming out. Um, And so that was very, very interesting. And for me, especially the paper um, was just, showed me that there's something going wrong and the BEM paper of course as well um, and so that was basically the start where I said oh I need to be more open and we discussed the open science framework back then already uh, in the lab group and then I came to Cologne uh, teaching statistics um, from 2013 on and just understanding it more and more uh, and then luckily uh, Christoph Stahl um, my supervisor is convinced open science enthusiast himself as well um, and so that was not a problem so to say are we going to pre-register or he actually encouraged it um, to pre-register to upload your scripts um he was one of the i think one of the earliest journals in cognitive psychology he was the editor-in-chief of um, experimental psychology introduced registered reports there um and so we 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 switched. Uh, my first study, I analyzed in SPSS with him. Uh, and then afterwards, we switched to all our markdown. And um, with Frederick Austin in the same group and his papaya package, uh, there was an entire workflow that was based on that. And so, it all came basically naturally because the entire group was um, pulling in the same direction. And so, that's how I yeah, couldn't resist doing open science.
0: <laughs> what would be your fr- your one piece of advice to kind of your yourself when you were just starting in in open science, if you could give yourself one piece of advice, looking back.
3: Um, I guess my one, it's just, just take it step by step and know that it'll improve um, over time uh, and not from one zero to 100 uh, within a day. Um, Because always comparing myself with people who are much better in R or much better in Git or or much better in all those different things. and there still are because we progressed the same speed maybe. Um, but if I look back, uh, I improved a lot. Um, and so just take it step by step, little baby steps. Um, you can't do everything open within a day. Um, but if you start, maybe for me, you want to start learning R or start programming bit better or upload your data analysis or your data um, and just take it step by step. and. in there for the long run and you don't have to be all open half a year it's fine if it takes a few years i would say
0: yeah well that's a lovely place to end um thank you hugely to bs and lisa for joining us on reproducibility and thanks for all of our listeners um and i hope that yeah i think we've learned something sophia and i and i i hope you did too so um see you next time